Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Luke chapter 2. And before we read the text today, let's just touch on a few details of the context of the passage we're looking at. If you're familiar with your Bible, you'll probably recognize that we are uh, in the birth narrative, uh, what we call Advent, the Advent of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So at this point, Mary had received word from an angel that she would be impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, her and Joseph were making their way to Joseph's hometown because the Roman government was administering this worldwide uh, consensus to census to take place. So Mary and Joseph were making their way to Bethlehem, which was a small town, but a very significant one. Uh, Most noteworthy was King David, the greatest king of Israel, was actually born in Bethlehem. And so this was all fulfilling a lot of messianic promise that you can find in the Old Testament. So let's let's get to the text now, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. We'll start there. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." If you understand the ancient world, it's, you find it pretty fascinating that shepherds would be amongst some of the first people to hear the gospel message, to hear about the Christ's birth. You see, in the ancient world, shepherds were looked down upon uh, in this culture. They were considered some of the people who were just out of place. They were outcasts, and their lifestyles kind of matched their um, nomadic reputation. So some considered them even thieves because they'd be accused of robbing people as people were going out in their journeys and traveling and they would get uh, supposedly robbed by these shepherds who were out in the middle of nowhere or out in the mountains on these travel paths. But God chose to have the message of the Messiah's birth of Christmas to go forth to these people. Um, And so this immediately tells us that the message of Christmas and the message of the gospel is for outcasts. It's, it is for those people who seem to have no place. It's for the needy. It's for the poor in spirit. Those who know they have a desperate need for a savior to be born for them and to deliver them. So the angel comes and he comforts these shepherd, shepherds and he says, fear not for behold. And I just want to stop there. Whenever you see the word behold, I just love this word. You gotta take a moment to think of the gravity of such a word. You see, biblical authors were very intentional when they would use the word that would translate as behold. What they're trying to do is captivate your attention and grab it. 
Whatever you're thinking about at that moment, they want to deter that away and focus all your attention to what they're about to say. So, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Every word in that sentence is emphatic. The whole sentence reverberates words that we'd be glad to receive. The gospel comes forth and suddenly the great fear that the shepherds had initially felt was traded for great joy. In one of my favorites, a Christmas classic, uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas special, there's a famous scene in which after days of frustration of the over-commercialization of this holiday, Charlie Brown cries out and says, does anyone know what Christmas is all about? Linus uh, responds saying, I know what Christmas is all about. And he walks to the center of the stage and quotes Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 as the answer to what the true meaning of Christmas is. And Charles Schultz, the author, the writer of this, did something brilliant. If you remember, uh, during this moment, Linus was holding onto his blanket, which he had always done. This character, for years of his existence, had always held to his blanket through thick and thin, even when he got ridiculed or made fun of it. He never separated himself from his blanket. And even in this very episode, he was urged to drop his blanket a few different moments, and he refused. But while quoting scripture, he, he drops his blanket aside just casually, just subtly, as he's talking about that the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I have good news. You see, what happened is, Linus was holding on to his greatest comfort, his blanket, and he drops it when he's actually talking about something that brings even greater comfort, the Christmas story and the meaning of Christmas, which is Christ, and it's all about him. Linus, like the shepherds, exchanged the great fear for great joy as he experienced the true meaning of Christmas and told others about it. And that's what happens when we as Christians capture or I guess rediscover the meaning of Christmas, we can experience the great joy that the shepherds experienced on that night. And I have this deep conviction that the proclamation of the gospel, whenever we share it, it should be shared with great joy and resulting in great joy. And what I mean by that is it's not that sober tones can't be used or conviction can't be the result, but to tell others of our great salvation, excluding the natural joy that comes with it, would actually be false advertising. Because after all, good news could only be good news, or I guess cannot be good news, if it brings us sorrow. So what is the good news being shared? It's explained in the text as the birth of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's the reason we have such joy at Christmas time, because the, the Messiah was born. I'm telling you, sometimes it's easy to forget how many hundreds of years these people had waited and had scripture written about the birth and the moment that this had come. It's hard to like put ourselves in their shoes, but that's exactly what we have to do. The anticipation of hundreds of years culminated on this night. So in the text as well, there's, there's an apposition of Christ and Lord, which conveys to us that Jesus is not the, simply the Messiah of the Lord, but he is Christ who is the Lord. 
This is some of the highest terminology we could apply to this newborn child. He's a Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament was leading up to this deliverer, this savior. But he's also the Lord, which in the Old Testament spoke of Yahweh, which is clearly deity and clearly the, the God of Israel. So to call him the Christ, the Lord, the Christ who is the Lord is kind of a big deal. And the angels tell the shepherds where they could find baby Jesus. And what you would expect to hear is that you'd find him in a palace. I mean, after all, he's, he's deity and he's royalty, carrying on that messianic title. But you don't find him there. They tell him that you're going to find him in a, manager, in a manger, in a smelly manger amongst dirty animals. Sometimes we glorify, you know, the picture of the manger in our children's books and such, but it was not a pleasant place to be. And it was certainly a humble beginning of, a, of the Savior. And this would have been mind-boggling for the shepherds, but it was just another way of communicating that this is no ordinary king who would grow up living in luxury and ruling his subjects. Rather, he's a king and he's a Savior who came into the depths of our mess to deliver us. So while there may have been only a few newborn children in the small town of Bethlehem, none would be wrapped in cloth in a manger. Let's continue uh, in Luke chapter 2, this time verses 13 through 14. The text reads, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we have this single angel who's now joined by a multitude of angels, or as the text says, a host of angels. And the word for host has militaristic overtones to it. This is the kind of word you use when you're talking about your militia. It's a word that means army. So it's absolutely fair to say that an army of heaven's angels came down at that moment. So heaven's army was deployed, but what for? Well, they sing a song, and one of the first Christmas carols ever sung was sung by this chorus of angels. Every hymn that we are familiar with originated from earth and is sung towards heaven. But in this case, we have a hymn that originated from heaven and came down and was sung upon or toward the earth, blessing all those who heard it absolutely unique situation. And so the angels sung praise to God and glory to God in the highest because the arrival of Christ manifested the glory of God like never before. In fact, like I already previously mentioned, all of the Old Testament was pointing towards this moment where the Messiah would be born. But the coming of Christ was not just uh, concerning the glory of God, but was also for the good of all humanity. So after giving glory to God, they proclaim peace on earth. And what a contrast this must have been compared to the type of peace that the Romans had to offer. Luke's gospel begins with a decree decree from Caesar Augustus, which reminds us that this was the age of Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. So the emperor would be praised by all the people because he had brought peace on earth. But this peace, it came at a dreadful cost. 
Church history and the history prior to it teaches us that nations were subjugated and plundered. Peoples were enslaved and impressed. And they, there was prosperity and peace for some, but for the majority of people, there was oppression and great fear, especially if they were seen as a threat to the Roman peace. There'd be no tolerance to such, and people would be killed for it. But the outward peace in Roman times did not secure a rest for people's souls. There's a famous philosopher, his name was Epictetus, and he was a contemporary of Luke. And he observed this, and I quote, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns more than even for outward peace, end quote. So obviously the peace offered by the Roman government is much different than the peace offered by God. So what is this peace offered by God uh, being declared by these angels? Well, the word peace comes from the Greek word erene, which in classical Greek meant rest or rest for the soul. It's very related to the Hebrew word and Hebrew concept of shalom, which was often thought of as opposite of war or opposite of chaos. But it's not just the absence of the negative. Erene or shalom both speak of eschatological hope of salvation for man as a whole, both the inward and the outward. It's the experience of God's blessing and presence by being in peaceful relationship with him and Stemming from that, everything is affected by it. The inward and the outward of mankind and the outward of creation as a whole too. So it's a state of peace that transcends that coming and going of flippant feelings. It's not that. It's so much more. So this army of heavenly angels arrive to the shepherds, announce the birth of Jesus, sing a so- and sing a song about a peace offering from God. But here's the paradox. The paradox lies in the fact that the host of heaven, the heavenly army, was deployed. But rather deployed for war, they were deployed for peace. I just want you to imagine our U.S. military sending out our most highly trained men and women to uh, invade a foreign land. But instead of bearing arms, they bear white flags, symbolizing the invasion of peace into that land. It sounds absurd, doesn't it? That, that's because no army has ever been deployed to bring peace, except this one. They came to proclaim that the holy, almighty God has brought down the white flag from heaven in the face of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9-6, a very familiar passage for the Jewish reader, um, calls the Messiah, amongst other titles, the Prince of Peace. But our English translations don't quite capture the irony that's in the Hebrew. The Hebrew says that the child will be the Sar Shalom, which is where we get that title, Prince of Peace. But a Sar is not a friendly title in the Old Testament. Sar has militaristic overtones as well, which denote basically a tyrant or a warlord. So Jesus is being called a tyrant or warlord of peace. It sounds strange. Prince of Peace sounds a lot simpler, and frankly, no wonder Bible translators keep it that way. 
How would you explain that the Prince of Peace is going to be this warlord of peace? Because then it makes it sound like he's going to do it exactly like the Roman government does through oppression and military might. But I want you to think about this. Engage this for a moment with me. Mankind rebelled against God and thus declared war against God's righteous rule. So now mankind awaits God's move. When it comes to war language, someone attacks and now you almost await to see what their move is going to be. And what happens is mankind is waiting for the wrath of God to act. And that would be righteous and just to do so. But what does God do? He sends his heavenly entourage, the army of angels, to announce that the prince has arrived. The warlord has been born, but he is not a bloodthirsty king. He's one who has come to shed his own blood to secure the peace between God and man. And that's phenomenal if you consider how all other peace in the ancient world had been purchased. It was through military might. But this king was coming to use his body as the very means of establishing peace, self-sacrifice instead of plunder. So he comes and, and God announces that there's a peace offering and the peace offering is a person, the Savior, Christ the Lord. Immediately for us as Christians, being part of the Lord's army, as I've heard it called, means that we are agents of peace, not of war. We receive the message of the gospel and uh, we join in the, uh, with the angels in announcing peace on earth. And we invite people into that. We invite people into having and experiencing true peace. Not the kind of peace that Epictetus lamented about. That even thousands of years ago, as a philosopher, he was completely accurate. That the kind of peace a government can, could purchase is not what our hearts ultimately long for. But here the angels announce the true peace that all of us long for. And that the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom, had been born to bring us this peace. Now let's look at the shepherd's response in Luke 2.15. The text reads, When the angels went away from them, from the shepherds, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they did go. And you could read the text and see what happens next. They told everyone what they saw and what they heard, and they glorified God by telling their story. Because those who witnessed God's goodness in their lives were able to glorify God by telling others about it. But here's a deep truth about the Christmas story. Even if Christ was born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but if he's not born within you, you're eternally lost. The Christ who was born in Bethlehem must also be born in our hearts. And that's what we call the idea of being reborn or born again. Because this Christ who is born, this Messiah, although it historically only happened once, that's what we celebrate year after year. The fact that through faith, we are born again. And he is born in our hearts. And we are given the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, as his indwelling presence with us. And so we celebrate that year after year forevermore at Christmas time. 
And now as we bring this text home in application, I, I really want to think about a contemporary question for us to ponder. And it's this. Are we teaching our kids, the next generation and the generation after that, that Jesus is the uh, reason for the season, but that Santa Claus is the giver of joy of the season? The question really implies, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with telling our kids that Jesus is the reason for the season, but having Santa Claus be kind of the, uh, you know, the mascot of Christmas joy? Well, everything's wrong with that including that the Bible disagrees with this. And this isn't about me denouncing Christmas festivities or uh, saying that you should throw away that mug of Santa Claus that you have. That's okay. I'm a festive person. That's not my point. But what I do want is for us to think critically about how we celebrate and who we celebrate. What I want from us is to see that Jesus is not only the reason for the season, which he absolutely is, but also that he is the joy of the season. All of this text that we've been looking at today should make our hearts leap with joy. Our Prince of Peace, our Sar Shalom has been born for us. The good news of great joy is for us to receive. So Jesus is not only the reason for the season, he's also the joy of the season. So I urge you, find joy in him, find joy because of him, and let every activity you do in every festive thing you do, be fellowship with him and giving glory to him. And please, don't underestimate the quality of worship that stems from a happy heart. My sole point in this whole message and reason why we have this episode today is this, if you remember nothing else. Those who have lost the joy of Christmas have lost the meaning of Christmas. Because Jesus Christ is the embodiment of joy born for us and born in us. I've heard some really good-hearted Christians say that, you know, Christmas is really for kids. And, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of grows, it fades as you get older. You know, the joy of Christmas kind of fades and you become more numb to it as you get older. Well, here's the thing. If Christmas is about, and the, Jesus is the reason for the season, but if Santa Claus is the joy of the season, then yeah, that is true. If it's about gifts and Santa Claus, then of course kids will experience the pinnacle happiness that is of Christmas. But it's not, since Jesus is not only the reason, but the very supreme joy of the season. I truly believe in my heart of hearts that each Christmas should be better than the previous. If you are a Christian, my hope and prayer is that the, the, this one would be better than the previous one. And looking ahead to next year, you'd have a sweeter Christmas than even this one now. Because it could only get better as you walk and know the Lord more and more. After all, it was good news of great joy that the angel brought to the shepherds. In Jesus' great discourse to his disciples, some of his final words before he faced his a trial, crucifixion, and death, he says this in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. One of the most neglected reasons why we forget that Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem on that day was to secure for us an indestructible joy. And Jesus said that he wants to give us his joy, the very joy that he possesses, and that our joy would be full. 
Not a cup half full, but a cup full. Not full of fleeting joy, but full of the joy of the Lord. The very joy that Jesus possessed and possessed with the triune God from all eternity past. That is part of the very mission and objective of the Messiah being born to us. When examining this passage, I had the pleasure of reading a sermon by the great Charles Spurgeon, who said this about John 15, 11, and I quote, A Christian has never fully realized what Christ came to make him until he has grasped the joy of the Lord. Christ wishes his people to be happy. When they are perfect, as he will make them in due time, they shall also be perfectly happy. As heaven is the place of pure holiness, so it is also the place of unalloyed happiness. And in proportion as we get ready for heaven, we shall have some of the joy which belongs to heaven. And it is our Savior's will that even now his joy should remain in us and that our joy should be full. End quote. Here's the thing. The more you cherish Jesus this holiday season and beyond, the more you cherish him, the more joy you will have. But likewise, the more joy you have, the more you will cherish Jesus. That's why we can't underestimate the quality of worship that stems from that happy heart that I mentioned earlier. The hymn writer and the author of the beloved Christmas carol, Joy to the World, Isaac Watts hit the mark when he said this, religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. And how could it? The angels brought good news of great joy. The very purpose and part of the mission of Jesus to establish for us indestructible joy. So to put it simply, come and adore Jesus. Cherish him as the baby that was born in Bethlehem. Cherish him as the man upon the cross bearing your sin. And celebrate him in his resurrection power over sin and death. And then cherish him as you wait for his return and glory. So this Christmas season, I pray that it'd be sweeter than all the previous but that also each year that you walk with the Lord, Christmas would mean more and you would experience more joy as you come to know further and dive deeper into the very meaning of Christmas, which is Jesus. Because after all, Jesus is not only the reason for the season, he's the joy of the season. 